you have this guy from smartfirearms.us. Jacob, we just lost you. That's hilarious. The magazine fell out of this and, and muted, my, <laughs> muted my mic. It hit my computer and muted my mic. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. Welcome to Meet the Pressers. I'm Matt Mallory, founder and president of PSNED, aka Public Safety and Education. And I'm Clint Macro, founder of the Trigger Pressers Union. This episode is brought to you by Shooter Technology Group, the makers of LASR software, ASP, Saber Red, and Lee Armory. Thank you. Today, our special guest is Jacob Paulson. Why don't you give us a little bit of history on uh, how ConcealedCarry.com started, uh, what it does for the average citizen, and, and why people want to check it out and, and look into it. Sure. So ConcealedCarry.com uh, has been an evolution of a, of a business. So originally, we were just CarryUtah.com, C-A-R-R-Y-Utah.com. And I was a firearm instructor, probably novice and naive and not very good at it in the beginning. That was a little over a decade ago, almost 12 years ago now. Wow. And uh, what I was good at was internet marketing. I really had a background as a, as a marketer. And so I was doing very well, getting a lot of students. And so really decided to make that a serious part of my, of my life. And so I started hiring other instructors so we could get more market share. Started looking at that more nationally and uh, moved into other states. Started hiring instructors in other states. Uh, I myself moved to Colorado in 2011. And so it just really started to expand that business. And over time, we decided to rebrand and we were USA Firearm Training. And that was working out really well. And in 2015, we added physical goods. So we started the e-commerce side, uh, shipping product. And then in 2016, late 2016, we purchased and acquired the website and the brand, concealedcarry.com. And so we kind of did a, a merger of brands and, and moved everything into that that single moniker. So concealedcarry.com, uh, as in terms of what we've been doing, I guess it's been around for a little over a decade, but as a brand, it's been ours for, call it, you know, coming up on three years. So today concealedcarry.com is meant to be all things concealed carry. So nice. we have about 40 instructors across the U.S. teaching classes, various types of classes. Uh, we have a large e-commerce presence. So we ship, you know, hundreds of orders a day to customers who buy product on our website, everything from holsters and optics to books and DVDs and all those kinds of things. Uh, we have a big content team. So we produce three podcasts. Uh, we produce uh, a YouTube channel. We have full-time writers writing articles uh, for the blog and the websites. And we have a lot of tools. We have three mobile apps now. Uh, Concealed Carry Gun Tools is probably kind of our flagship app. And so you can pull reciprocity maps and get legal summaries nice. for all 50 states and all those yeah. kinds of things. So we stay busy. That's cool. very cool. cool. Yeah, your, your uh, Concealed Carry book, uh, you had sent that to me a little while ago. That's going to be something I'm, I ultimately want to add to my website and push as well. I think that's a great thing that you guys put out. Now you update it uh, quite often. A lot of times those resources get to be kind of stale and then, you know, as, as these reciprocity agreements seem to change with the tide and the weather, uh, people get the wrong information. So I, I like that about that, uh, that book that you guys have out. It's a, it's a pain to keep that stuff updated, to be clear. <laughs> I feel bad because a lot of firearm instructors out there, they want to have those resources on their website, right? If you're a local instructor in, you know, insert city here, 
you want to have an updated reciprocity map on your site. You want to have legal summaries. You want to have all these resources, but to make sure it's always updated is obviously important. Otherwise you have a liability on your hands sure. or at least you're negligent if you're not putting in the effort and energy to try and keep it updated, but to do so is a pain in the neck. So yeah, it's, it's not an easy game on our end, but we, we work really hard at that. Yeah. People don't realize how, how those reciprocity agreements change like sometimes daily yeah, uh, well, you know, the politics behind those, you know, was it 2017? I think it was 2017. We, uh, we kept track of the changes. We made 76 changes wow. to us wow. reciprocity. Um, you know, some, some permit reciprocity had a lot of changes. Some States didn't have any, but in total there were 76 unique changes in 2017. Now, did you ever dig deeper into that? Like the reason why say, you know, why this attorney general decided that they don't want to always, s- yeah, we always try and dig deep. So sometimes it's legal changes like Nevada passed SB, off the top of my head, I think it was SB 175. And so Nevada's law changed. And so that, that law dictated a lot of things. Previously, that you know, Nevada only recognized permits who had similar training requirements, which, which is something we see a lot of states that do that. But when SB 175 passed and was signed by the uh, Nevada governor, they removed that element. So you still had to have some other elements in place in order to have reciprocity with Nevada, but they removed the requirement for comparable training requirements. And so that added a lot of new states were recognized by Nevada. So sometimes it's a law change like that. Uh, other times it's just a, a gov, you know, it's just a, a, an attorney general who says, Hey, you know what, we're going to do it like this for now on. Uh, or we're, you know, I don't like that, that state anymore. We're going to kill that. So sometimes it's very arbitrary. Sometimes it's very defined. Like, well, this, this thing changed and therefore these are the repercussions of that. Um, then you have states who like, uh, like Utah and Minnesota and some of these where they just have a kind of a cycle where every couple of years they go through and they reevaluate all the other 49 states based on their existing criteria. And they discover that you know, they haven't changed their, their criteria any, but this state now qualifies. This other state no longer does uh, because states have changed. So it's a lot of things like that. It's, it's, a, it's a patchwork, man. You guys know the deal. Most definitely. And there's a lot of confusion too, as far as uh, reciprocity. I get a lot of people that they refer to reciprocity, like New York has no formal reciprocity with any other state. New York's license is good in other states. Other states can accept New York's license, but New York doesn't accept any other state's license. It's not a two-way street. Exactly. So in true reciprocity, dictionary definition is a two-way street where both states actually have a written agreement um, to accept each other's licenses. So I I try to really refer, uh, let correct people on that, uh, you know, that surgical language so they don't get hosed up and sure sure that's a good point you know we could definitely get confused right i mean to be really accurate we always got to say things like these are states that honor recognize or have reciprocity with you know right so that kind of leaves yeah. it broad enough we can get away with it but yeah it's it's a mess another thing that i think really screws people up and it's getting to be a bigger issue for us like we see more and more emails coming to our support team or comments on facebook where they'll say that our, our book or our map or our app or any of the places where we have reciprocity maps on uh, from concealcare.com are wrong. And they'll state because of constitutional carry. Mm-hmm. So this is really becoming a, a more common confusing point. Like, so for example, you know, you're, you're, you guys are both in the Northeast. And so it'd be very normal for you guys to say, well, you know, what about Maine? You know, the, the Pennsylvania permit is not valid in Maine, but Maine has constitutional carry. So that can be very confusing. So the person will say, well, I know I can carry in Maine. They got constitutional carry, but your map shows it as red when I put in my Pennsylvania permit. It's like, well, <laughs> that could be confusing because yeah, that's, that's, that's true. You might be able to carry in Maine because of constitutional carry, but Maine still maintains a list of permits they do and do not yep. honor. And Pennsylvania is still on the no list. 
And that right. does matter in certain circumstances, right? Because in Maine, Parks. There are certain circumstances or places where you do need a permit to carry, constitutional carry is not enough. Yep. And so you would want to know that. So anyway, that's, that's another thing that's like starting to cause more and more uh, problems that we're noticing. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. We do that in the uh, the Utah. We do a multi-state course, Utah, which which you know we're listed on your website, and you sent us students. So thank you. That's awesome. So any instructors out there, definitely get signed up with them guys. They'll they'll drive some traffic to you. Um, but uh, in, you know, in the class, we tell people that Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, et cetera, you know, you can't carry in state and federal parks. Uh, unless you have a license in that state. And we run into the same thing with LEOSA. When we, we certify, mm -hmm. recertify law enforcement officers, even though they're covered, covered under LEOSA, technically under the law, uh, if they don't have a, a license in that state, then they technically can't, even under LEOSA, carry in those parks, which is kind of uh, bewildering. And, and uh, a lot of the officers are like, what? I don't even know. Yeah. And when well, you school zones them, would be another example, yep, right? Like, so exactly. Yeah, it's just a messy, it's a messy patchwork, right? I mean, I feel bad for gun owners of today, but you know, we've been doing it this way for decades and we're all kind of, we have to acquiesce to this is the current state of the, of, of affairs. Most definitely. So you, you're dealing with this, this big, big corporation with uh, concealedcarry.com. <laughs> Things are going very successfully for you. How, how much time does that eat up? Do you get to go out on the range and teach that often or, or are you more behind the scenes or working, working in the offices, so to speak? Well, this could be a confession of sorts, so I'll do my best. Uh, you know, concealedcarry.com is a, is, a, is a fledgling, growing business, right? So we're a small business. We're, we're 10 people strong, uh, nine full-time and, and one part-time, and we're very busy. And uh, I think like a lot of gun businesses, you know, we, we did really well in, in the good old days, and, and today we're getting you know, smarter and better and, and, and trying to expand market share uh, and continue to grow our business. There's been a lot of changes so what does that mean for me? Well, it means that, you know, the, when, when the business needs more work done, I got to do more work. It, yeah. This is the truth of being a business owner. You guys yeah, understand sure. this, right? It's, oh, yeah. you know, the business owns you. Uh, I, was, I was at a scout camp with my son over the weekend. And so some of the people are like, oh, well, you're a business owner. You can take as much vacation as you want. It's like, well, yeah, right. I could take as much vacation as I want, but I'm also never on vacation. Right. You're right. working while you're at the scout camp. I right. choose not to make money today, so I'm going to go fishing. <laughs> right. So it's like I was sitting behind a coffee shop, you know, in the town, 15 minutes from the camp, you know, working on the Wi-Fi. Hey, guys, this is Jason Speller with Draw Academy, and this is Meet the Pressers with Matt and Clint. Meet the Pressers. We have uh, what we call the Guardian curriculum, and this is our, our own product, and it's relatively new, not very common out there because not a lot of instructors uh, are, are certified in it. But it's, we have the Guardian Pistol Curriculum, and it's three different classes. And, it, and this is a little bit of an awkward thing because it's, it's, we really designed it so that it could be taught three days back to back, one, two, three days. And then it would be very comparable to a lot of other kind of defensive pistol curriculum that's out there uh, that is a two to three day kind of program. Mm -hmm. But we, we really made it three separate classes so that a, an instructor could teach it, you know, one Saturday this class, the next Saturday the next one, and the next Saturday the, the third level uh, of that curriculum. So that it's not, it's a little bit more modular and students can experience it differently if they're only limited to being able to train on Saturdays, for example, if they can't take the three-day class. I really like that curriculum. I like the way it's designed. It's about four to 500 you know, live rounds per student per day, uh, per class or per day, depending on how you want to think of it that way. And I really like the middle one, the level two, which we call Guardian Standards. It's my favorite because in Guardian Essentials, you know, in that kind of first day of that defensive pistol curriculum, I think it's true in a lot of, of curriculum, you know, you're really kind of establishing a baseline. You're doing a lot of holster work. Uh, you're doing some target transitions, a little bit of movement, some of those things. And that's good and that's important. But, but Guardian Standards, to me, that level two, that, that second day is the sweet spot. 
because that's where, for me, you see the most growth in the shooters. That's where you see people really kind of take off. They, that's where the most light bulbs go off. They, they start to get enough muscle memory, if we can use that word, on some of those things that the cognitive stack becomes more functional for them to grow, right? Because you guys know this one. When you're on the range, put three, four, five new things that a student's supposed to be thinking about at once in their head, and yeah. something falls out the bottom. They can't hold that much in their brain. Yep. So by day two or three of the training, some of those things, they don't, they don't need to be in the cognitive stack anymore. Their, their draw stroke gets solid enough that they don't have to think about that anymore. The grip gets solid enough that they don't have to think about that anymore. And that's where, for me, I see the most growth in the students. That's where I get the most excited is kind of, you know, that for us, what is our, you know, the, that second level of the pistol curriculum and a lot of defensive pistol curriculums. I think it's kind of that's the middle point, the day two of three days of training. That's where, that's the sweet spot. I love that. And is it a culmination of uh, a, a bunch of other courses? Is it is it just different training you guys have taken where you, you pull the best out of every different course? I mean, how, how did it come? How did it come about? So Riley Bowman is our director of training. So it's really his his baby, uh, to be to be frank. And I think it's probably. It's like anybody else who builds their own curriculum. I think it's a, a com- composite of all the things, you know, from, from one's own experience, right? So from Riley taking his own, you know, classes from, some, nice. some, from top trainers, from him uh, being a, a, a post-certified instructor on the law enforcement side, Riley's got a badge, uh, as, as, uh, as you do, Matt. I think, I think it's just eventually you get a sense for, I really like this, I really like that, I don't like this, I don't like that. And like most products, whether we're talking about courses or training gear or anything, in, you know, that, that hits the patent office, most products are invented because we like some things about a certain product, but we just have a couple little tweaks we think would make it better, right? Yeah. And so I think the Guardian Pistol curriculum is, is similar to other curriculums that way, that for us, this was the answer to the little things we didn't like that were present in all the other programs we looked at. Yeah, so it's a necessity breeds invention. Yeah, I, 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 it is. I, I would say yes, and I think that's, that's pretty common in our industry. Yeah. That's yeah. certainly, I would say, is the case here. Yeah, Michael Martin said a, a good instructor is a good thief. I believe, uh, I don't believe in the myth of originality, right? I don't, I don't believe that there are any original ideas. I think all ideas, no matter how much they seem to be original, are a composite of all the other inputs we have in our life for, uh, experiences, right? So well, that, That's evolution, right? I mean, that's right. That's how, yeah. that's how things work. What do you carry every day, or at least most of the time, are there any any times where you might carry something differently because of where you're going or perhaps uh, you're, you're Yeah, I, I really have three, uh, I would say three common loadouts. Uh, loadout one, probably the most common, is a P365 appendix carry and a Brave Response appendix holster. It's kind of a, a waistband, not belly band, but like a waistband IWB system. And I really like it. It's super comfortable and it works for me really well in appendix. It has one spare mag a holder. So let me take off the whole rig. I'll leave gun in holster here for you guys. Try not to get it you know, tangled up here. That's the rig. So gun and spare mag in, in holster, you know, with big elastic Velcro band that goes around, uh, you know, under my belt line. Uh, now, there are situations where I will carry traditional IWB, kind of four or five o'clock on the waist. And when I do that, I carry a Glock 19. Uh, on occasion, maybe it's a different gun, but for the most part, that's a Glock 19. And that would be a situation where for whatever reason, I'm going somewhere where I feel like capacity in this case, uh, trumps, uh, appendix advantages, right? So I, I, in that, in that moment, I say, I want to carry a Glock 19 because I want 15 plus one, that's 16 plus a fair mag of 15. I want that 31 rounds, but I can't carry a Glock 19 appendix, uh, that is to say it would require significantly different clothing or adjustments that aren't part of my daily uh, carry, you know, 
way of doing things. So if I'm not going to make some massive changes to my wardrobe and other things to carry Glock 19, I can't do it in appendix. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of holster manufacturers say, oh, you can with our holster. And then they stick it on me and they say, oh my gosh, it looks like you're in the alien movie and something's coming out of your chest. So I don't know, just the way I'm built, but I have a hard, it's, it's more challenging for me than a lot of people to put a full-size or mid-size gun appendix. So when I carry the Glock 19 and I do it because I want the capacity, I want 31 rounds, I'll carry that four or five o'clock. And I generally will do that in a couple different holsters. I'm a real big fan of the Stealth Gear uh, Ventcore line. I think they have great holsters. So I sometimes will use one of theirs. I also uh, like the Brave Response original holster. So that, this last one I showed you was the Brave Response appendix. They also have an original Brave Response holster. It's three spare mag pouches. I really like that one. Uh, I'll use that one IWB as well. So I, those are probably my two favorite holsters. And then my third loadout, and this would be a situation where I'm wearing a suit. So mm-hmm. if I'm putting on a suit jacket, which happens every Sunday, and sometimes in other situations too, maybe I'm attending a wedding or something else, that is, that is a wonderful thing. I love it when I wear a suit for the sake of concealed carry because I can run an OWB rig, uh, you know, or you know, just a decent IWB rig, that, but I can put it up strong side right at 3 o'clock on the hip. Uh, and that's going to give me a very fast, efficient draw. I can pair, carry a, a good, solid, you know, a couple spare mags strong side. Uh, and it, I can get away with a lot when I have a suit jacket on. So I'd say those are kind of my three common things. I'll wear, I'll run appendix with a, with a kind of a micro gun, usually P365, or I'll run traditional IWB uh, Glock 19, or I'll run a kind of OWB, you know, set up with, with a suit jacket. Uh, I get away with a night, uh, Glock 19 and appendix carry, but I, I have... Uh, accepted that I will never be able to tuck a shirt in, you know, so that's, (laughs) that's just kind of the trade off, you know, so these are the things people need to think about when they, when they choose how they're going to carry what type of gun and what mode. Well, it's, there's so many little things like, it's funny because I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm too, I'm too big of a guy to carry appendix. And it's like, well, if I, if I put on 30 pounds, I could rock a Glock 19 appendix. Um, I'm almost too skinny to, to rock that gun appendix. And so, and, and, and again, there's other trade-offs, right? It's like, well, the type of pants I wear, the type of clothes I wear, I'm a t-shirt guy and I generally wear a t-shirt that fits me about properly. Uh, but if I wore button up shirts or if I wore slight, a one size larger shirt or, uh, you know, polos or, you know, then I might get away with some of those things. So yeah, there, you know, a person has to make a decision about what's important to you and what you, you know, how you want to rock it. But I felt pretty good about the P365 in appendix. I can seal it really well. I'm rocking a 10 round mag in the gun. So 11 in the gun plus 12 round spare mag. So I'm carrying whatever that turns out to be 23 rounds. So I, I feel good about that gun. Hi, I'm Kelly from Armed and Feminine, and you're watching Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. Politics. I know you've got a, the national stage as far as through the, through the website and whatnot. Um, anything locally to you in Colorado and or anything nationally that you want to uh, let our, our viewers and our, and our watchers know about that uh, concerns you? Yeah, it all concerns me is the short answer. When we were in Pittsburgh, all three of us did some presentations at the USCC Expo there. And one of the presentations I did, one that I was most passionate about, was called Five Anti-Gun Policies and Why We Must Say No. And I talked about several. And uh, I'm getting really concerned. Um, If we're talking about something timely, I guess we could talk about suppressors. I'm really concerned about the idea of outlawing suppressors. There is now some legislation that's been drafted at the federal level for Congress. I think there's 
I think there's a House bill. There might be a Senate one as well, a, a corresponding uh, Senate bill. But I'm very concerned about that. Um, I'm not as concerned. It's kind of like some in some ways for me, it's like bump stocks in that I don't personally use suppressors. I don't personally use bump stocks either. But I do see great danger in us outlawing them. For one, it sets a really easy precedent for a product was used one time in a mass shooting. And so let's outlaw it without any reason to believe that, you know, it's lack of being there would have made any difference in the outcome. So I'm very concerned about that kind of a precedent. I also think that it takes a step back because we look at other civilized countries in this, in this, in this mm-hmm. planet and they love suppressors, right? It's a hearing ordinance kind of thing. It's a matter of making it more convenient, comfortable, and less annoying to neighbors to be able to go shoot. So I think it's a step, a massive step back. I, we were so close to the hearing protection act getting passed and now we're yeah. talking about outlaw, yeah. uh, outlawing these things. So that's something that's timely, but I think the the biggest dangers, I think the two biggest dangers I see out there are back, universal background check laws and magazine capacity limitation laws. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I think both of them uh, lead to a very slippery slope that leads yep. to confiscation of guns. Yes. So I, those are, and I, I don't, you know, it's preaching to the choir probably for a viewer of this show, but universal background checks, I'm very concerned about. We have that here in Colorado. I think we're one of now 16 or 18 states that have universal background check law, at least for handguns, if not for all guns. Here in Colorado, it is true for all guns. That's a huge problem. It's a tax. Uh, I mean, if, if Spring, Springfield just sent me a gun to test and review, right? So I didn't have to pay for the gun, but it did cost me $65 to retrieve it from an FFL, $50 transfer fee and a $15 background check fee. Yeah. Um, and so if Riley wants to now borrow that Springfield that I have in hand and he wants to go test it too, guess what? We got to go back to the gun store and pay another yeah. $65 just for me to hand it to him, for him to take it to the range and shoot it. So we're talking about the tax. We're talking about the inconvenience. But but the real big issue is that obviously it's just unenforceable without registration, and registration is the ultimate path to confiscation. Confiscation, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's that, that's same here in New York, and one of the reasons why I got my FFL. <laughs> yeah, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous game, and and in New York it's dangerous because obviously New York had New York City had the firearm registration program in place before the Firearm Owner Protection Act of 1986 was signed into place, and so. The FOPA, you know, that one of the articles of FOPA prevents a, a, a local jurisdiction, organization, or government from having a, a list of guns and gun owners, right? From having a registration system. Yep. But New York City and several others are kind of grandfathered in because it says, unless it already existed, or I can't remember the exact language, but basically, if it was already being done prior to 1986, they can continue to do it. Yep. So New York City is still doing that. And that's a very dangerous dangerous game for me. I mean, not only do you guys have to deal with the fact that everyone knows what guns you have, uh, but it also leads to other things. I mean, <clears throat> uh, we have an instructor in Manhattan and he's subject to random without notice uh, home inspections where they got to mm. inspect how much ammo do you have? Cause you're limited in how much ammo you can own. How is the gun secured? How is the ammo is secured? And this is a guy who has like the nine licenses that are required to actually own a gun, have it in your home, be able to take yep. it to a range, shoot it at a range and take right. it out of state. Right, however many licenses are required for that, I, I lost track. But they, he's still subject to NYPD showing up and checking his house. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that that stuff is a no no go, no play. And and I think magazine capacity limitations are equally dangerous uh, in that in that same realm for some of the same reasons. Uh, I worry about the arbitrariness of it. I worry mm-hmm. about a lot of those things. You know, here's here's one though, guys. I'm sorry to to drag it on, but actually, I just I just had a thought. Another thing I'm worried about. This is ha- this isn't coming up yet but I'm really concerned about it coming up. And this is going to piss off some of your viewers. I'm really worried about the idea of mandatory training for concealed carry. I'm really concerned about this. Um, you know, this is a great example because we got three guys here with very different training requirements. Clint's in Pennsylvania, no training requirement. Matt, you're in New York, 
a training requirement varies a little bit by county, but more or less mm -hmm. people are probably going to shoot a gun. And I'm in Colorado where there's a training requirement, but basically anything qualifies. If you showed up at my house and I told you the four safety rules and sent you on your way 10 minutes later, that would qualify in Colorado. Wow. So we have three varying different you know, levels of, of qualifications between the three of us in the states we live in, but there's no data anywhere, nor could you possibly draw any conclusion to suggest that gun owners in Pennsylvania are any less you know, safe and capable of using a gun in self-defense than gun owners in Colorado or New right. York. Absolutely. I, I, I struggle with this one a lot because we have too many relatively influential people, mostly fire instructors, who strongly feel we should have tr mandatory training requirements uh, for a permit, in part whether they admit it or not, or you know, even if they admit it to themselves because their own income is based on that training requirement existing. Um, but also you know, inherently because they, we just kind of feel like, oh, all of us have had those people who've come in our class and they don't even know which way to point the gun, let alone load the thing and shoot it. We're like, oh my gosh, that person could get a permit without any training? What, you know, what will the world come to? Well, they're doing it in Pennsylvania all the time. Yeah. And they're, they're no, there's no data, arbitrary or otherwise, that would suggest they're any less safe or that they have a bunch more negligent discharges. So Absolutely. And and, and in, in Pennsylvania, where training is not required, my instructors and, and myself, I don't have trouble finding students for classes. People no. will get the training. Your responsible law-abiding gun owners will get the training because they feel the need to get it. And it goes back to, you know, we teach in the NRA courses, like what, in order for someone to take training, they have to have that need or that desire. And people generally want that. They have that need and that desire. I find that's also a, a generation. The market, the market dictates it. You know, if, 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 if the classes are available that are affordable for the consumer that give them yeah. what they want, they'll take it. That's if you're key. too expensive or not providing what people want, then of course you're gonna have a hard time getting students. But that's, that's, that's a whole different you know, discussion. But yeah, I really worry because I think if this came up, if this legislation came up, uh, whether at the state level or at the national level, uh, I think the gun community would be split in a way that's very dangerous because we, you know, I, I don't think this, this particular topic has been, uh, explained well enough yet that all the various considerations have been considered uh, so, such that, you know, as, as a community, we broadly agree that there should not be a training requirement. Well, if you yeah. apply the same logic to that, then we should have to get the government to stamp off on you to take a class so that you can worship God. You should get the government yeah. to stamp off on you to take a class to write a love song, to make a yeah. movie, to... Yeah. For yeah, whatever and yeah. and people think that's ridiculous when i say something like that well i think it's, it's the same thing because of a you know it's a constitutionally guaranteed right yeah well there's, there's uh, so much danger i mean there's danger in the arbitrariness of it right uh, who, who's mm -hmm. going to decide how much training is enough right. you know, in right. illinois and new mexico they think you need 16 hours you know uh, i mean it, so it's 15 hours they're screwed 15 hours you're not going to be able to do it but 16 Gotta you're okay 16. then you're okay right and 17 so the, you're even better right the arbitrariness of it is very dangerous but there's other dangers i'll give you one real simple one if, if we think the gun owners need to have training in order to carry a gun well who would not do that do you, 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 we need to understand that we're not saying that the, the proposal is that you need it to get a permit but we're not there's no proposal that suggests you need training to own a gun but that would be the inevitable next step. Well, right? some states, that is the case. Yeah. Well, that is the case. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that would happen. If, if, if nationally we say that you've got to have training to get a permit, the natural next step when that doesn't do anything to anything will right. be to require people to get training to own a gun. So and It's a slippery slope. That, that, it's inevitably what has to happen in order to achieve the objective that they think they're achieving by, manda right. by mandating training to begin with. Another, uh, another bill here in New York, they're making it, they want to try to make it mandatory if you're going to buy a long gun 
that you have to have a hunting license. <laughs> so to get a hunting license, you have to take a hunter ed course. So there's your oh. training, mandatory training, but the way that they tied it so that the state would make their money would be, you have to get a hunting license. It's all about the money, boys. It is. It is. We need our industry, including those who think they would suffer financial loss, to understand the dangers of mandatory training mm -hmm. uh, and, and why it's just frankly unconstitutional. Absolutely. Definitely. Well last said, thing, my friend. Last thing I'd like to do, we've been doing this with all the guests. Uh, national organizations have their place, but a lot of the, the real change happens on the state level, the real boots on the ground, the folks that are actually fighting for our rights. Uh, who is the predominant state or local organization in Colorado that you would recommend people support and get involved with so that they can stay, stay uh, uh, active and understand what's going on with their legislatures and to help promote uh, liberty? There is a, there's an organization here in Colorado called Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. Mm -hmm. RMGO. Uh, I'm not a big fan. And uh, I might offend some by saying that. It is a local chapter of a nor national organization that I think is not entirely dependable or ethical. Uh, and, and certainly here locally, they've done plenty of things that I'm like, mm, no, I don't think so. So Rocky Mountain Gun Owners is certainly probably the best thing to be connected to, whether on their email list or on their Facebook page, to at least be abreast of what's happening. Mm -hmm. but I don't trust them, frankly. Okay. Uh, and there's not really a, uh, a local competitor you know, in, in that realm, uh, which is not true of us. There's so many states that have such amazing, reliable organizations that, that just seem to be so awesome. And here in Colorado, I just think we're lacking uh, in, in, that, in that way. It was awesome having you on. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and spending a little bit of time with us and our, and our viewers. And uh, we, uh, we look forward to doing more with you and seeing you at the, the show after show after show. You're, you're at them and we love uh, breaking bread with you, talking and catching up. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, no problem. Thank you again. We have a lot of sponsors. That's how we said it something like that. We have. Make sure you check them out and give them your business. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shooter Technology Group, the makers of LASR software, ASP, Saber Red, and Lee Armory. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share, and click that little bell to make sure you know when our next show is uploaded. And until next time, you're watching Meet the Pressers. Meet the Pressers.